In the Olivet Discourse, as we know, Jesus Christ is answering the disciples' questions regarding the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Lord, and the end of the age. In verses 5 to 13, Christ begins by explaining the end. The end is afar off. Until the end, there will always be tribulation and persecution. And the end will only come when the gospel has been spread all around the world. Then in verses 14 to 23, Christ answers the original question. When will be the destruction of the temple? It will happen when the abomination of desolation, that is the Roman Gentiles army, enters the city and offers a sacrifice to Caesar. This will lead to the destruction of the city and temple. And this was all fulfilled in AD 70. Today we consider the next section, verses 24 to 27. Christ has answered the disciples' questions regarding the end. He's answered the disciples' question regarding the destruction of the temple. But the third and last subject is now answered. When and the sign of your coming. But what is the coming of verse 24 to 27? Full and partial preterists all teach this as an invisible spiritual coming of Christ to judge Israel, destroy the temple, end the Jewish age, and begin the gospel or Gentile age. In contrast, the historicist and the futurist agree this coming is the second visible public coming of Jesus Christ. That coming we confess in the Apostles' Creed that from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe a consistent principle of interpretation comes to one conclusion. It is the second visible public coming of our Lord. And if you read sermons or books on this passage from anyone, from the early church, the reformers, the Puritans, the Presbyterians, the Evangelicals, the Baptists, the Episcopalians, the Congregationalists, every one of them agree until the 1900s, this is the second coming of Christ. It is only when Protestants started to use the Jesuit principle of interpretation did they begin to believe this was teaching an invisible spiritual coming at AD 70. 
And so I want to present to you that historical argument that this is the second visible public coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our three headings are one, the timing of the coming, the nature of the coming, the application of the coming. So first of all, the timing of the coming. What genre is this? It's prophetic. Jesus Christ is speaking in his mediatorial glory as prophet. And he is speaking like a prophet. And when you read the prophets, you know that there are events. Centuries and centuries apart, but intermingled together. You remember in our introduction, we quoted from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. See that? In these two verses, you have one, the coming of Christ to save, and two, the coming of Christ to judge. Intermingled. And that's what we have here. This is why we can have in one single sermon a prediction about the destruction of the temple and a prediction of the second coming thousands of years apart. It's consistent with biblical prophecy. But the question and the dispute arise over the time language. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the partial preterist and the full preterist say these are the days and tribulation of A.D. 70. Now, the futurist actually says these are the days and tribulations of the seven-year tribulation. I disagree with that, and I've demonstrated somewhat of why I disagree with that in previous sermons. But the historicists say these are the days and tribulations that the entire age is characterized by until the second coming. And I believe when you look at the context the grammar, and the parallels of all three Gospels, the only conclusion is this. The days and tribulation are the days and tribulation of the whole world until the second coming. First of all, Mark 13. What's the context? From verses 14 to 23, Jesus has been speaking of the temple. And he gives a conclusive statement in verse 23. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. All things about what? All things concerning the temple. He does not say, behold, I have told you all things, but I'm going to continue because I've not told you all things. No. He is saying, I have told you all things about the temple, the abomination of desolation, the 
the, the urgency to get out of there, the, the, the suffering that will happen during this period, the false Christs who will claim to speak in my name. Behold, I have told you all things. Conclusive statement. Which means the next section has a new theme. And that is clear in the Greek. But those days. There are different kinds of adversatives in the Greek. This is a strong one, Allah. It's a very strong adversative, which means new section with a new theme. And just to show you I'm not just making this up, I'll quote a partial preterist. His name is William Lane. He's written one of the most popular commentaries on Mark. So I'm quoting him not because he's an historicist like me, but opposite, he is a partial preterist. And this is what he says with the grammar here. But is a strong adversative, implying a contrast to what has just been said. It serves to set verses 24 to 27 off from the earlier sections of the discourse, and particularly verses 21 to 23. It's clear language. Verse 24 and following is set off differently in contrast away from what has been said recently. Verse 24 is of a different subject and a different time period to the temple. And then it says, those days, not these days, those days. Remember, every single word in the Bible is from God himself. This is the very nuts and bolts, the jots and tittles of inerrancy. Every single word is from God and every single word has meaning. This is why God chose Greek for the New Testament, for its precision of language. These means these days we have been considering, but those days means those other days in contrast to what we have been considering. What are those days? Those other days are the days of tribulation. Now, there's two ideas here. One Is it the tribulation of verses uh, 5 to 13 or is it the tribulation of verses 14 to 23? Well, what does the grammatical language say? The other days in contrast to, distinct from, the days of the destruction of the temple. The tribulation are the days of verse 5 to 13 with the wars and the natural disasters and the persecutions, and the sufferings, and the false teachers. After those days is the coming of the Lord. Now Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, this section is paralleled in verses 29 to 31. What is the context again? Jesus Christ has given us a conclusive statement in verse 25. Remember, 
He's been teaching about the temple, the abomination of desolation. Behold, in verse 25. I have told you before. See, it's a conclusive statement. All the things I told you about the temple, I have told you. You're forewarned. You know this now. Now obey me. And then we have a new section in 26 to 28. Wherefore? Behold, he is in the desert. Go not forth. Behold, is in secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines upon the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. This is a new time period. Again, to quote another partial preterist, William Hendrickson, in his commentary both on Matthew and in Mark. As a partial preterist, he says, the grammar of the language here and the words chosen So this is a different time period to the temple. Jesus Christ has concluded the temple teaching in verse 25 with this conclusive statement. Wherefore, is speaking of a new section, people are going to say Jesus Christ has secretly come. Do not believe them. Why? Because when Jesus Christ comes, it's like lightning. Everyone can see the lightning. You can see it from the west or you can see it from the east. Lightning is public and visible to all. Don't believe secret comings. Or like eagles, it's actually vultures over a carcass. If you see a landscape and there's vultures circling, everyone can visibly see It is circling a carcass. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Not secret, not invisible, but a public, visible coming everyone shall see. And that is speaking, William Hendrickson, the partial preterist, says, and I agree, of a distinct time period from the temple. And then verse 29 Immediately. Immediately. Immediately what? After the temple. It doesn't say that. After the tribulation of those days. Again, not these days, those days. And Matthew is very helpful here. In verse 9 of Matthew 24, he speaks about literally the tribulations. And then... In verse 21, great tribulation. See how Matthew is distinguishing between the tribulations that characterize all the world until the end and the great tribulation which will occur at the destruction of the temple. So after those days of tribulation is not the great tribulation of the destruction of the temple, but the days of tribulation of Matthew 24, speaking in that first section in verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. The language there is 
tribulation and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake and many shall be offended, etc., etc., etc. And even pretend this was all not true. It says after. It doesn't say before and it doesn't say during. After. What does after mean? After means afterwards. So Matthew here is saying, immediately after the days of tribulation, that is the whole tribulation distinct from the great tribulation of the great temple, then Christ will publicly, visibly come. But the clearest gospel of all is Luke. Luke chapter 21 and verses 25 to 28 is the parallel. But look at verse 24 for the context. Jesus Christ comes, 25 to 28, after 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. How long? Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then, verse 25, the signs in the heaven and the coming of the Son of Man. Now, no matter how you interpret verse 24, no matter how you understand the phrase, the times of the Gentiles, it's crystal clear that's a long time. However you understand this phrase, the Son of Man comes when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And let me tell you categorically, the times of the Gentiles were not fulfilled in AD 70. They're still here today. The times of the Gentiles is when God's covenant promises go from the Jews to the Gentile nations. You can see this in Matthew. In Matthew 10, Jesus say, go preach the gospel. But don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because it's the Jewish age. Then Christ is dead, buried, resurrected, and then gives a new commission. Go ye into all the nations. Why is that? Because it's the age of the Gentiles. Or if you want a more theological example, Ephesians 2, 11. Remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, that at that time, at that time, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But what's changed is the times of the Gentiles. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. This is the times of the Gentiles when the covenant promises are given not merely to Jews, but to the Gentiles. And when does this end? At the end of the world. Go 
to the nations, disciple them. Lo, I am with you until the end. And so after the times of the Gentiles, that is when all the Gentile elect have been saved, Romans 11, then, then the coming of the Son of Man. And so, when you soberly and consistently consider the context, the grammar, and all three parallels, there's only one conclusion. The timing of the coming is after the age we live in. It's after the whole age of the tribulation, the whole age of the gospel being preached to all nations, after the elect among the Gentiles have been called. Then, and only then, will Christ come. Secondly, the nature of the coming. The partial preterist, again, there are brothers, partial preterist, there are brothers, I want to make that Though this is a controversial sermon, trying to be fair and representing, there are brothers. The partial preterist teaches this coming is like this. The sun being darkened, the moon not shining, the cosmic powers are simply a temporal judgment on earth. It is speaking simply of a temporal judgment where high and lofty powers like the Jewish leaders are overthrown. The coming of the clouds of glory is simply an invisible spiritual coming to judge Israel. The angels are ministers. The gathering of the elect is the preaching of the gospel and people repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus. That is the partial preterist interpretation of Mark 13, 24 to 27. And I disagree with that. Let me just give you some basic theological disagreements. One, The end of the Jewish age was not AD 70, it was 40 years beforehand. This understanding that the destruction of the temple is the end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the Gentile age, that is 40 years too late. When Christ died, what happened in the temple? The veil was rent. The veil was rent. What was the Great Commission before his ascension? Go ye into all the Lord and preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew 28. Go and what? Preach the gospel to all the nations. Uh, Luke's version. Go from where? From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's 40 years before AD 70. And the outpouring of the Spirit is the completion for the end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the Gentile age. All we have to do is to read the book of Hebrews. The Jewish age is gone and done away with. AD 70 is a judgment, not the end of any age or beginning of any age. 
It was AD 33 that was the end, end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the Gentile age. But let's look more contextually. First of all, the cosmic phenomena of verses 24 to 25. In those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. It is true. In the Old Testament, among the prophets, temporal judgments are often accompanied by cosmic phenomena. We read Isaiah 13, and verse 1 is very clear what this is about. This is about God's judgment upon Babylon. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Okay. And as Babylon, the city, is destroyed by God, what is the language used of Isaiah? He says what? The day of the Lord comes, cruel, both of wrath and anger, to lay the land desolate, to destroy sinners out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. I will punish the world. It is true. The Old Testament describes temporal judgments with cosmic phenomena. And if you read the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Joel, the book of Amos, again and again and again, judgments on Babylon, Assyria, Edom, etc., 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 are often accompanied by cosmic phenomena. But here, this is how you never, ever interpret your Bible. One verse, one phrase means this here, Therefore, it must mean the exact same thing there. That's what we call concordance exegesis. Get a concordance, find a word or phrase. This is what it means here. That's what it must mean there. That's extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Isaiah 7.14 A virgin shall bear a child. And shall be called Emmanuel. That child is born in the next chapter. When it's applied in Matthew chapter 1 to Jesus Christ, therefore Jesus Christ was not God and was not born of a virgin. That's what liberals have been doing for 130 years concordance exegesis. Because in Isaiah 7, 14, the word can just simply mean a young woman or a virgin. Only context decides. We don't interpret the Bible like that. Isaiah 7, 14 is prophesying of a virgin being born. There is a historical fulfillment in that section. But the ultimate fulfillment is a literal virgin birth of Emmanuel, God with us. Or Second Chronicles 28, 3, speaking of the valley of Hinnom where children were sacrificed to idols and has become a place of a curse and there's fire and rubbish. In the Greek, Gehenna. That's the word used for eternal hell in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, Gehenna 
is a literal rubbish dump. Therefore, there's not really a place called hell. It's only a rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem. See the danger of concordant sex of Jesus? Words have meaning in their context. So how do we stand on Isaiah 13? Old Testament cosmic language is typological language. It's using temporal judgments to teach eschatological judgments. Sodom and Gomorrah was a temporal judgment, but is a picture of eschatological judgment. And we see that in Isaiah 13. Verse 9, it says, The day of the Lord comes. What's the day of the Lord? The day God comes to judge all peoples. It says in verse 13, it says, I will judge and punish the world. Babylon, the temporal city being punished, is simply a type to to take our eyes and look forward to the worldwide judgment at the day of the Lord. And so if the type uses the language of the sun darkened and the moon and the powers of heaven, what will the fulfillment be? If the type of sacrifice is a lamb slain, what will be the language of the fulfillment of Christ dying for sins? A lamb slain. And that's exactly what Mark 13 is saying. Jesus Christ here is not speaking of a temporal judgment, but the fulfillment of all the temporal judgments, eschatological judgment in the day of the Lord at his second coming. And this is why Revelation chapter 6 uses this language. In Revelation chapter 6, we have the second coming and judgment. And what's the language used? Verse 12, when I beheld, he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black. The moon became as blood. The stars of heaven fell into the earth. The heavens departed as a scroll. It is rolled together. Every mountain and island was moved out. The kings of the earth, great men, rich men, captains, bondmen, free men, hid themselves, crying out, for the mountains to fall on them, for the day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? Typological language in temporal judgments are looking forward to the final fulfillment. Because what happens when Jesus Christ comes? There is going to be cosmic change. Second Peter chapter 3, what happens on the day of the Lord. The heavens and the earth, which are now by the word kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's why Isaiah 13 and Amos and Ezekiel uses cosmic language. Because in the future, when Christ comes, there will literally be cosmic change. And therefore, in Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Jesus is using this language because when he comes, 
there will be cosmic change. Everything around us are going to be burnt up. The sun, the stars, the moon, the trees, the mountains, the lakes, the seas. Everything's going to be burnt up with a burning heat that will dissolve everything. And out of it, a new heavens and a new earth will come. But secondly, the coming of the Son of Man. Verses 26 and 27. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Again, it's true. Sometimes in the Bible, the coming is spiritual. For example, in Matthew 16... Verse 28, some standing here shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that was fulfilled in Pentecost. Because the kingdom of come came, kingdom of God came with power, Acts 1.8, with the outpouring of the Spirit, and by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is here. John 14, 18, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. So the Bible does speak of an invisible spiritual coming of Christ. But again, just because one coming means one thing here, does it not mean it means it there? Think of the job as witnesses. What does monogonies mean? To beget a child. Therefore, Jesus Christ is a creator, creature. Jehovah Witness exegesis again. In the Old Testament, son of God means an angel, a judge or a descendant from David. Therefore, Jesus is not God, he's a creature. Words have meaning only in context. What's this context? This coming is accompanied by what? Clouds, glory, angels, gathering. And Matthew 24, 30 adds, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Coming, angel, clouds, glory, trumpet. What does that mean? Only one meaning in the New Testament. The second visible public coming of Christ. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one for another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. The sheep go to heaven, and the goats go to hell. Did that happen at AD 70? No. But in the future, it will happen. Well, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Sadly, many partial preachers say this is not the second coming. This was AD 70. When you have people who die and they're in Christ, you do not need to despair. We which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, the Lord himself shall descend with heaven, from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
that we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Did that happen in AD 70? No, it did not. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. When Christ comes, it says, In the twinkling of the eye, with the trump of God sounded, the dead shall be raised. Did that happen at AD 70? No, it did not. And so when you look at Mark 13, 25, 26, 27, in context, it is clearly a visible public coming of Christ. Matthew wants you to know that. Matthew 23, 39, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 24, 26 to 28, the Son of Man will be like lightning, everyone will see. But it's interesting. I read R.C. Sproul's commentary on Mark this week. And he believes all this is fulfilled in AD 70. And he quotes Josephus. And in Josephus it's saying that in AD 70, some Jews testified that they looked up and there were chariots and soldiers in the sky. And he says, see, this was fulfilled in AD 70. So I looked up the quote. And Mr. Sproul completely omitted the context. Josephus is saying, God for decades had been teaching the Jews of their sin with signs. And the signs are quite preposterous. Whether they're real or not, I doubt most of them. For example, some signs are this. One day a priest took a heifer to the temple. The heifer was pregnant and gave birth to a lamb. So a cow gave birth to a lamb. There was a big brass door that no one could move, but suddenly the door began to move on its own. At Passover and at Pentecost, people began to prophesy that God was angry with the Jews. During Passover, some people testify that they saw chariots in heaven. That's the quote. But when you look at Matthew 24, 30 to 31, it's even clear in language. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So how do you know the second coming's here? You'll see Jesus Christ himself. The sign is Christ. Christ was not seen in AD 70 by anyone. No Christian has ever written that. But it's interesting, Mr. Sproul. I listen to Ligonier, Renewing Your Mind, every day. It's wonderful. I commend it to everyone. Last Saturday, it was on 1 Thessalonians 4. And he said, the dispensationalist view of a secret rapture is false. Because in that chapter, it speaks of coming, clouds, glory, and trumpet. These are public signs, not secret signs. Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 4 can only be speaking of a public, visible coming. But yet Mr. Sproul, when he came to Mark 13, ignores his own consistent exegesis 
and says it was a spiritual, invisible coming, despite having clouds, glory, and trumpets. What's going on? Mr. Sproul is interpreting his Bible according to his presupposed system. We're all in danger of that. But when you're consistent, this is teaching a public, visible coming of Christ. Thirdly, the application of the coming. What actually happens when Christ comes? Verse 27. And there shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds and the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost parts of the heaven. Now again, can the word angels be used for a minister of the gospel? Yes. I think the vast majority of people agree when Revelation 1.20 speaks about the seven angels of the seven churches, that's speaking of the preachers, the pastors, the ministers of those churches. But is verse 27 using angels for ministers? No. Again, context. Coming, clouds, trumpets. What does Jude teach us? What does 1 Thessalonians 4 teach us? What does Matthew 25 teach us? It's literal angels accompanying Jesus at his coming. And what happens? First of all, judgment upon nations. Matthew 24, 30 says, All the tribes of the earth mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. Luke 21, 25, Upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, men's hearts failing them for fear. Did any of these things happen in AD 70? The Jews most definitely were perplexed. The Jews most certainly were in fear, but the nations were not. That's because in the second coming, when Jesus Christ appears, he will judge the nations. Second Thessalonians 1, when Christ returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those who obey not the gospel. Or Revelation 19, when Christ on his white horse, faithful and true, he's dripped with blood because he's come to earth and he's destroyed the wicked nations. That's what happens at the second coming. And this is good news for us. What's the context of this? After the days of tribulation. When Christians have suffered unspeakable things at the hands of wicked men. When Christians have been starved and made homeless because of their faith. When Christians have been persecuted from nation to nation. When Christians have been crucified, tortured. The early church martyrs who were in sports arenas, being eaten literally piece from piece by wild animals. Or in the medieval age where the inquisitions the most brutal of torture given those who to believe in Jesus Christ alone. The martyrs of Scotland who would say Jesus only is the king of the church and people were drowned alive or hung or shot. The brothers of Korea in the 1900s where the communist governments and did unspeakable things to them. 
the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, those who experienced China uh, for much of the 20th century. Christ will come and they will all be terrified because Christ will sit on his throne of judgment and he will condemn them to hell and they will be fairly, justly punished for their sins. But Jesus has good news for you and me. When the angels come, they'll gather the elect. And Luke tells us exactly what that means. Luke 21, 28. When these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. What's redemption draw nigh? Your full, complete salvation. Romans 8, 23. The redemption of our bodies. Did that happen in AD 70? No. But when Christ returns, look up, your redemption draws nigh. Because when Christ returns, those who are on the earth and in him, in the twinkling of an eye, shall be changed to a glorious body. All the elect who are in heaven, according to their soul, will come with Christ to earth, and then united to our body, glorified, resurrected life. And then Christ will take us up to be with him in the air. And we will spend eternity with him in heaven. And so for all the saints who experience tribulations, sufferings, persecutions, tears, mourning, grief, death, When Christ comes, the angels are going to gather you to him and your redemption shall be complete. And this is to encourage you. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 4.16, For which cause we faint not, we endure to the end. Why? Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man, per- uh, inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory to come. That's why at the second coming, our redemption is complete. All the afflictions, all the tribulations, all the suffering are at an end. Farewell, curse. Farewell, death. Farewell, mourning. Farewell, tears. Farewell, these things. Hello, blessedness. Hello, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Hello, peace without end. Hello, the glory and presence of the Lord. And so Christ, even in his glory as a prophet predicting the future, he is so, so pastoral. And that's our message. Christ has predicted his second coming. It will happen in the future at the end of the days of all tribulation. And when he comes, it will be wonderful. And because he's predicted it, It's true. It's guaranteed.
Maranatha be on our lips. Lord, come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that Jesus Christ predicted the destruction of the temple and predicted the second coming. This gives us great hope and comfort that while we are in this world, we shall have tribulation, but he has overcome and we will go to Emmanuel's land. Oh, help us all to look to that day and we pray, come Lord Jesus.